All right, as we look at uh, Matthew 1, 18 through 23, I want to talk about dreams. Most morning when I see my children, I will, uh, the first thing I'll ask them, uh, first thing I'll say is, I love you, and then I will say, uh, how did you sleep? I'll ask them how they slept. And every single morning, both of my kids will say, good, never okay, never bad, just good. Even on, uh, even on nights where I know they didn't sleep uh, well, so I spank them for lying, right? <laughs> So then I'll ask, uh, what did you dream about? And every single morning, my daughter in particular will say, I dreamed about you, Daddy. So again, I spank her for lying, right? <laughs> All right, let's take a survey. How many of you remember your dream from last night? Okay, a couple of you. Raise your hand if you generally remember your dreams. Raise your hand if you hardly ever remember any dream. Okay. Recently, I looked up the 10 most common dreams, uh, at least for Americans. So raise your hand if you've experienced any of these. I'm going to call out something. If you've experienced this dream, raise your hand. Number one, being chased by someone or something. All right. Number two, being able to fly. Can you fly in your dreams? Okay. Number three, this is a weird one. But this is really common. I've had this one. Your teeth falling out. Okay. Number four, driving a car, especially driving a car and something goes wrong or something. Number five, this is a kind of a funny one. Your kids will enjoy this. Uh, needing to go to the bathroom but not being able to find one. Okay. Number six, being undressed naked in public. Okay. Four more, a dream where you're falling. Maybe even one of those, I think they're called hypnic jerks. Sounds like a band name. Uh, one of those things where you, you wake up. Or what about a dream about famous people? All right, two more. Dreams about dying or death. And then lastly, dreams about being back in school. All right, I will still have dreams. I've been out of high school for over 25 years, and I still have dreams that I am, uh, you know, missing an assignment or something, or I haven't gone to a class that I didn't know that I had or something like that. So... The reason that we're talking about dreams this morning is because dreams are a huge theme in Matthew. You need to understand this. In fact, the phrase, in a dream, appears six times in the New Testament. What's interesting is every single one of those is found in Matthew's gospel. We'll see the first of those uh, this morning. So let's, uh, let's go. Matthew 1.18 through 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. All right, so last week, we're in, in verses 1 through 17. We did some Ancestry.com. We looked at Jesus' family tree, and we saw a whole lot of names, all right? If you're one of the myriad pregnant women in this room, I commend to you that list. We've got far too many Tims and Joshes and Sues. We need more Rehoboams and Zerubbabels, Rahabs, all right? If you recall, last week's text that you probably noticed there was this certain pattern to the way that that genealogy plays out. You see, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and so forth. For like 15 verses, it's just so-and-so fathered so-and-so. But when it comes to the end of the genealogy, you read this, Matthew 1, 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. And that's interesting because if you're paying attention, if you're doing observation, which is the first step of Bible study, then you realize that there is something there that breaks the pattern. There is this pattern that he's established over the first 15 verses that's broken in verse 16. In particular, Matthew doesn't refer to Joseph as Jesus' father. That's really interesting, and that leads us to our passage this morning. If Jesus' birth doesn't fit the normal pattern of human procreation, then what happened? And that's what our text is about today. This is going to, to be about the virgin birth of Jesus. I've mentioned this before. But this is not the Immaculate Conception, right? Or the Immaculate Reception, which is some NFL play, right? This is not the Immaculate Conception. It's a totally different thing. That's a big theological pet peeve of mine when someone's talking about the virgin birth and they refer to it as the Immaculate uh, Conception. The virgin birth and the Immaculate Conception are absolutely not at all 
the same thing. The Immaculate Conception is the 19th century Roman Catholic dogma stating that Mary herself was preserved from sin when she was conceived. Right? Conceived, conception, immaculate means without sin. So according to Roman Catholic theology, Mary was sinless. Not just Jesus was sinless, but Mary was sinless. That's what immaculate means. So according to Roman Catholic teaching, Mary was conceived and she was born without the trace of original sin. That's immaculate conception. So the immaculate conception is about Mary and it's bad theology. It's unbiblical. The virgin birth is about Jesus and that's good theology. That's essential. That's biblical. So we're going to talk about the virgin birth today. But before we do, I want to address a quick apologetic concern. Maybe you've heard somewhere, probably on Facebook, all right, you've heard somewhere that the virgin birth of Jesus, that isn't unique to Christianity. In fact, lots of pagan religions had similar stories of gods being born to virgins, all right? Gods like Osiris and Horus and, and Mithra and Dionysius and so forth, all right? So what do we say to that? When in reality, it's not actually true, all right? The, the parallels between Christ's story that we're going to read today and the stories, the myths about these other pagan gods are, uh, they might be somewhat uh, wide, but they are like an inch deep. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to prove that this morning, so I want to mention some resources because we've actually addressed that uh, objection in depth elsewhere. And so I want, to, I want to commend to you a couple of uh, resources. Number one, a blog that we have on our website called Jesus Christ and Pagan Parallels. So if you're talking to someone and they say, well, the, the virgin birth just parallels these other pagan accounts, that might be a good resource as would a theological equipping class called Does Christianity Borrow Ideas from, uh, from Pagan Myths? So I would commend both of those to you. If you have a friend or a co-worker who says the virgin birth is just one more story in a long line of similar myths, check out those resources. They'll give you some helpful responses, and then feel free to send an email if we can do more. With that out of the way, let's look at the actual text. It begins with this phrase, the birth of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, the, uh, the, the word there for birth in Greek is Genesis. If you want to know why the, the book of Genesis is called Genesis, it's because it's about the birth or the beginning of the world. And it's about the birth of the people of God and the birth of God's promises and the birth of God's covenants and so forth. It's a book of birth. It's a book of beginnings. And so is Matthew. In many ways, uh, Matthew is actually going to kind of recapitulate what we see in Genesis. It's the, the creation of a new people. And Jesus, uh, Matthew is going to present Jesus as being the beginning uh, of a new creation. He's going to recapitulate the story of Israel in his life and death and resurrection. As we talked about last week, he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations. He is the true heir of the promises that were made to Adam and to Abraham and to David and so forth. So the Old Testament, with all of its law and sacrifices and temples and all of that, that shadow, whereas the New Testament, in particular the person and work of Jesus, is the substance. He illuminates all these underlying hopes and desires and promises that we see foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Now another uh, apologetic issue that this text is going to bring up is the fact that uh, it differs from Luke's account of Jesus' birth. If you read Luke's gospel and you read the account of Jesus' birth, there is some similarity, but there's also a lot of dissimilarity. For instance, we saw last week the genealogies of Matthew and Luke differ. And we talked about the fact that that was because they're written for different purposes, different perspectives and so forth. And so the same is true with the perspective of this week's text. In our text today, we're going to see Mary is already pregnant. But if you were to go back in Luke to the, the passage that we typically read each Christmas, if you recall there, an angel appears to Mary before she's pregnant and tells her that. We don't see that here in uh, Matthew's gospel. We don't see an angel appearing to Mary and telling her she's going to conceive a child. So Luke is told a little bit more from Mary's perspective, whereas Matthew is going to focus more on Joseph's perspective. So the accounts, Matthew and Luke, aren't identical but they're also not contradictory. They are instead complementary. They have different goals. They have different purposes and so forth. So as we begin our text today, Mary is already pregnant and she is betrothed to Joseph. What is betrothal? What does it mean to be betrothed? It's kind of like modern engagement. 
but not really. All right. Think about what engagement tends to mean today. Here's what it means in typical 21st century American culture. It means at least for today, I want to marry you. All right. Not sure if we'll actually get married, but at least today I think so. All right. Reminds me of a scene of a scene from uh, The Office. Ryan says this to Kelly. I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up. I want to marry you, Kelly Kapoor. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday and probably. I can't promise you that we'll always stay together. I can't promise you that I'll never cheat on you. Then he goes on to this whole rant about how marriage shouldn't be like that. But I can tell you this. Even if the odds are 50-50 that we'll break up within the week, I want to roll those dice. I love you, Kelly. Now, that's obviously a caricature of the modern concept of engagement, but you get the picture, right? We all know people who have broken off an engagement for one reason or another. Maybe that's for good reasons, but oftentimes it's also not for good reasons, right? But if that image, the way that we think of engagement, if that image is in your mind when you think about betrothal, then your understanding of the passage is going to suffer. In reality, ancient Jewish betrothal was a binding marriage contract. It was a binding marriage contract. You were already legally bound to that marriage. In fact, it was actually called divorce to break off a betrothal because the marriage was already formally commenced. It was already formally in process when you got betrothed. Once you were betrothed, that was legally binding. It was a covenantal relationship that could only be severed by death or divorce. So typically in Jewish culture, you would be betrothed for a period of one year, after which you would have a formal ceremony in front of witnesses, and then you would consummate the marriage. So Mary and Joseph at this point are betrothed, but they haven't yet consummated the marriage, and she's found to be pregnant. Now she knows, we know this from Luke's gospel, she knows already that the baby is from the Holy Spirit because she knows that she's a virgin. And an angel has already told her that she's going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. But imagine that you're Joseph, right? Joseph has his doubts, right? It's not like, uh, you know, people 2,000 years ago didn't know where babies come from. Joseph knows where babies come from, and he's a bit suspicious. She's betrothed to him, but he knows he hasn't been intimate with her, humanly speaking. So he thinks, probably thinks there's another cook in the kitchen, right? And he doesn't have a whole lot of options from his perspective. Because he's being grounded and ruled by Jewish law. From the perspective of Jewish law, there are no other options for him. According to Deuteronomy 22, he should actually have Mary put to death for infidelity during the betrothal period. The problem with that is that the Romans had severely limited the ability of the Jews to carry out capital punishment. So Jewish authorities kind of came up with a workaround and said, since the Romans won't allow us to put adulterers to death... Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to mandate divorce in this context. The word mandate is really important. Divorce, in such cases, was legally mandatory. If your betrothed fiancé, if you want to use that uh, modern word, if your fiancé was unfaithful during the betrothal period, you did not have a choice. You could not marry her. Divorce was mandated. And notice that the text explicitly says that Joseph is a just man. He's righteous. That word just in Matthew means that he honors and obeys the law. All right? So don't read our modern conception. Uh, don't, don't read Paul into Matthew. They're different books. They're different authors. They use words in different ways. All right? So just in Matthew means one who honors and obeys the law. And according to the law, you can't marry an unfaithful fiancé. But notice that Matthew's not, uh, or that Joseph's not only just, He's also compassionate. Notice what it says. He doesn't want to shame her. So he aspires to divorce her quietly. The law actually allowed for a much more public scene. Joseph could have made a scene. He could, he could have shamed Mary. But the law didn't require him to do that. It required him to divorce. But it allowed for that divorce to be somewhat less public. It allowed for a minimum of two witnesses to be present when Joseph writes out a certificate of divorce. So that's what he's determined to do. From his perspective, that's his only option. His only option is to divorce her. And so his only option then 
is to say, am I going to do it publicly or am I going to do it more private, privately? And so he, for him, this is the only option for him to both maintain his righteousness, his justice in the eyes of the law, and then also his compassion toward Mary. By the way, I want to mention something that comes up a lot in our culture. In particular, a lot of people seem to put compassion and justice somehow in competition. They say mercy is somehow uh, contradicted by obedience to God's law. That it's even acceptable for you to disobey Scripture if your intention is to be gracious and compassionate. For example, I have a buddy, he's actually in this room right now, who was told by a church that they supported his wife divorcing him even though she didn't have any biblical grounds because they just wanted to be compassionate to her. They wanted to be merciful toward her. They even said, and this is infuriating, they said that Jesus respected God's word. They respected the Mosaic law. Jesus respected the Mosaic law, but sometimes he broke it for the sake of mercy. All right? Sometimes Jesus broke God's word. Sometimes Jesus broke God's law for the sake of mercy. Maybe you've heard similar things. Maybe you've even said or thought similar things. If so, you need to repent. That's actually blasphemy. If Jesus broke the Mosaic law, if Jesus broke God's word, he didn't fulfill the law. And thus, we're under the law. And he wasn't sinless, so his death wasn't sufficient. And we're all in big trouble. All right? Jesus often broke Jew, uh, uh, Jewish tradition. He never broke God's law. It's never compassionate. It's never gracious. It's never loving. It's never merciful to disobey God's law or to encourage others to disobey God's law. In reality, love and compassion means doing what's best for others, and that always entails doing what God's commands because God's commands are always motivated by a desire for our highest good and for our ultimate joy. So when, when it comes to our text today, we, we need to uh, recognize that Joseph's hands are tied. If Mary is guilty of porneia, that is fornication or premarital sin, uh, sex, if she's guilty, he has no choice. He has to divorce her. His only choice is whether to humiliate her in the process. And so he's going to opt for the more merciful option, which is to do it quietly. Let's keep going. Verses 20 through 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So notice that first phrase, as he considered these things. Now this isn't the main point, but it does suggest Joseph is not being rash. He's counting the cost. Again, he's trying to figure out how to maintain justice and compassion without sacrificing either. He knows that the law says that he must divorce Mary. He's trying to figure out how to do so mercifully. And as he's thinking about it, he's probably overwhelmed by the decision, he's probably stressed out, and so he goes to sleep and he has a dream. Now, as I mentioned before, the phrase, in a dream, and this particular word for dream, appear only six times in the New Testament. Every single one of them are in Matthew. In fact, five of them, five of the six, are all encapsulated in the first two chapters of the book. So this is something that Matthew is screaming. This is a pattern we're supposed to see here in the opening of his uh, gospel. In addition to our text today, we'll see the Magi have a dream, warns them not to tell Herod where Jesus is. Joseph has another dream. He needs to get out of Bethlehem. He needs to go to Egypt to avoid Herod. Joseph has another dream that he needs to go back to Israel. When, when, when they return to Israel, Joseph has another dream that he needs to go to Galilee rather than Judea. Those are the first five. Those all occur within the first couple of chapters. And then lastly, at the end of the book, you're probably familiar with this story, Pilate's wife has a dream that warns her that Jesus is righteous and that Pilate shouldn't have anything to do with the trial. But the fact that five of these six are concentrated in the first two chapters is really important because it shows that God's sovereignty is on display here. From beginning to end, God is orchestrating the events here of Jesus' birth and, and the events of Jesus' preservation. 
He's leading and he's directing Joseph and he's leading and directing Mary and leading and directing his son Jesus to do exactly what he intends, exactly what he intends to fulfill Scripture. In other words, this isn't a coincidence. These things that are happening, these dreams that are happening, this isn't a coincidence. This is God's providence. So Joseph has a dream, but not just any sort of dream. Right? We talked about dreams earlier, right? I have meaningless dreams all the time. I watch Die Hard, and sure enough, I dream that night I'm fighting terrorists, right? That's just how it happens. We have dreams all the time that don't mean anything. Joseph's dream isn't like that. This isn't just a random dream that's motivated by what he ate or what he watched or something like that. He has this divinely inspired dream. It's explicitly said to be from an angel of the Lord. That word angel can also be translated as messenger. It means the same thing. So this is explicitly said to be from the Lord. And before we get to uh, what the dream actually says, let's chat briefly about dreams today. What do we do with dreams today? In short, can God still give dreams today? And the answer is yes. God can still give dreams today. But then the follow-up question, does God give the same types of dreams that we see in the Bible or it's some sort of authoritative command. And that's where I'd say, no, I don't think so. Why not? Because of the sufficiency of Scripture. Everything that is necessary for life and godliness is found in Scripture. God might lead you. God might direct you through your dreams. But he doesn't give morally binding revelation in that manner. Right? If someone comes to you and says, God told me in a dream to marry you. All right? That's not something that is authoritative for you. That's not something that you have to do because that person maybe made it up. Right? Absolutely all that is necessary for you to live a life that is pleasing to God is found in Scripture. So dreams might remind you of something in Scripture. They don't replace the role of Scripture. You often hear when it comes to missiology, you often hear people, especially in, in, in the Middle East, uh, they'll hear about, um, there'll be a missionary, and someone will come up to them and said, I had a dream from the Lord that I'm supposed to go to such and such town and, and, and talk to the first white person I see and ask them for a book. All right? And they will hand them the Bible. It's not the dream that saves them. The dream is just the means by which they lead them uh, to Scripture. So it doesn't replace Scripture. It can somehow, uh, sometimes, though, supplement it. Now look at what uh, Joseph actually dreams. Notice what the angel says. He says, do not fear. Think about all of the things that Joseph could be fearing in this moment. Don't fear what others will think. This is a really big one. There's even a story in another gospel, I think it's in John, where the Pharisees accused Jesus of being born of fornication, of being born of porneia, uh, porneia which, which suggests at least that there was some sort of a suspicion around his birth in the community. It was somewhat well known that there was something unique about his birth. So that's a lot of potential shame for Joseph to bear, but the angel says, don't fear. And I think also by that he means don't fear that you're breaking the law. Remember, Jesus, uh, Joseph is a just man. He wants to do what is best. And what is best is what is obedience to God's word. It says don't fear that you're breaking the law, that you're sinning in, uh, in marrying Mary. Why shouldn't he fear? Because she's not guilty. I'm sure Joseph wanted to believe her, but I'm also sure that he was probably somewhat conflicted. This doesn't happen all of the time. But how could he really know? How could he fully trust her? Here's the answer. The angel says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's not from fornication. Now, for the Spirit to intervene in this way is really unique. And that suggests that the child will be unique. And we see that uniqueness on full display here in the text. It says the child will be a son, and not just any son, but a son who will save his people from their sins. There's a few things to note here. First, notice that Joseph, when he is uh, referred to by the angel, he's called the son of David. That's a really important term. Don't miss that. That's a little detail you might just skip over. That's really important. That's why the genealogy was so important last week. In other words, this is an heir of the Davidic promise, right? The Messiah, the Christ, could only come from David because the promise was made to David that one would sit on his throne eternally. So it's really significant that Joseph is called the son of David. 
Second thing I want you to notice is that Joseph is told to name Jesus. And that's really significant because that is, in Jewish culture, the role of the father. Remember, Matthew has already gone out of his way to show us and to clarify that Joseph isn't Jesus' father. But by naming him, Joseph is uh, basically adopting him as his own. And that's significant because it means that Jesus is now going to be an heir of the aforementioned Davidic promises, that a king would, uh, would arise who would reign eternally in justice and peace. Third, notice the significance of Jesus' name. They are to call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. That's what Joshua means. That's what Yeshua means. All of these are different ways, whether they're English or Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever it might be, different ways of saying the same thing, which is the idea Yahweh is salvation. That's what Jesus means or Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation, but salvation from what? This is really interesting, what he says Jesus is going to save the people from. When first century Jews thought about the Christ, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah, when Jews thought about the Christ or the Messiah or the Davidic king, they typically thought of a king who would deliver them from, their, from foreign armies. That's what David did, right? If you remember the story of David and how he becomes the king and all that kind of stuff, before he's the king, what does he do? He slays Goliath. And David has slain his ten thousands. He's this warrior king who, who, who slays Goliath and defeated the Philistines and brought victory to the nation of Israel. So most Jews in the first century would have viewed salvation in rather militaristic terms. Most Jews thought that when the Christ came, he would save them from their physical enemies, save them from their oppressors, save them in particular from the Romans who were oppressing them at the time. But notice what the angel says. It says, he will save his people from their sins. In other words, there's a worse enemy than Rome. There's a worse tyrant than Caesar. The real enemy isn't Gentiles or emperors. It's sin. It's Satan. It's death. What we need saving from isn't primarily injustice or oppression or systemic uh, examples of injustice or oppression or something in our culture. What we need saving from is sin. How precisely Christ is going to save his people from sin won't be revealed for a while in the Gospel of Matthew, but notice we see that from the very beginning, that's the purpose. Why was Christ born? Why was Christ conceived by the Spirit? To save his people from their sins. By the way, it's also interesting to note that it says here he will save his people from their sins. Those familiar with the Old Testament might have expected it to say something slightly different. Look at Psalm 130, verse 8. It says, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Same sort of idea, saving from sin, iniquities and sin, parallel terms. But notice it says he will redeem Israel. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is the promise is then expanded here in the book of Matthew. Matthew is cluing us in on something. We should have seen the genealogy, which is the fact that it's not just Jews who are listed in the genealogy. There's a number of prominent Gentiles that are listed as well. But God's salvation isn't merely for one nation. It's expanded. Right? This isn't just for Israel. It's indeed for all of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile. There's this expansion of God's promises that characterizes the book of Matthew. We'll see that throughout the book as we go over the next, I think, three years that we'll be in Matthew. We'll see this over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, God just dwells in a temple, this one little building. But Jesus is the new temple, and his glory is going to cover the entire earth. In the Old Testament, we see this little strip of land that's called the promised land. This little strip of land in the Middle East. In the New Testament, we see this expansion of that promises as God's people are going to inherit the entire earth. In the Old Testament, we see one day among the seven that's called Sabbath rest. In the book of Hebrews, we see that it, all of eternity is, in a sense, Sabbath rest. 
In other words, when Christ fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, he doesn't merely meet Old Testament expectations. He expands those promises. He doesn't merely save Israel, which was the hope and expectation of the Old Testament. He he saves people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Let's keep going. Verses 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Just as we've talked about the fact that dreams are a big theme in Matthew, we get to another theme, which is huge in Matthew, and that is the theme of prophetic fulfillment. Of all the Gospels, Matthew is the most concerned. He by far emphasizes that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophetic expectation. In fact, almost two-thirds of all the explicit references in the Gospels to Jesus' fulfilling prophecy are found in the book of Matthew. But what we're going to see as we go through the book is that that Matthew is going to do something really interesting and really unique in regards to prophetic fulfillment. In particular, a lot of the things that we're going to read don't seem on the surface to be fulfillments at least not the way that we tend to think of fulfillments. We tend to think of what's called a direct fulfillment. What's a direct fulfillment? Well, direct fulfillment is the idea that an Old Testament prophet looks through his big future telescope, sees the future by God's grace. He sees Jesus in particular doing something. He prophesies about Jesus doing that thing. And then Jesus eventually fulfills that prophecy. That's direct fulfillment. A prophet looks in the future, sees Jesus doing something, goes back in time, prophecies about it, and then Jesus does it. And sometimes that's exactly what happens. The problem is that isn't the only way that prophecy functions and is fulfilled. In fact, it isn't the primary way that Matthew speaks of fulfillment. Rather than direct fulfillment, Matthew often employs what is called typological fulfillment. Typological fulfillment. It's a really fancy term. If you want to sound super smart at work, just tell your boss you're doing some typological fulfillment, right? He won't know what it means. You don't either. It doesn't matter, right? What's it mean? Imagine you're reading the, the Old Testament, and as you're reading the Old Testament, you see that Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then you happen to be doing a reading plan where you read in the New Testament as well, and you happened to be reading in that period On the same day you read, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and you think, man, that's a strange coincidence. And then you think, you know what else is weird? Israel had 12 tribes, and Jesus had 12 disciples, and Israel entered the promises of God through the Jordan River, and Jesus was baptized in the Jordan to fulfill God's promises, and Israel defeated the greatest enemy that the world had known at the time in Egypt, and Jesus defeats man's greatest adversary, And Israel sacrificed the Passover lamb, and Jesus is called the Passover lamb. What is that that you're doing in that moment? You're doing typology. Those are examples of typology. What is typology? Typology, according to Graham Cole, is the idea that persons, for example, Moses and events like the Exodus and institutions like the temple, can, in the plan of God, prefigure a later stage in that plan and provide the conceptuality necessary for understanding the divine intent. For example, the coming of Christ to be the new Moses and to affect the new Exodus and to be the new temple. So typology is where you see some sort of relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament that is not coincidental but is intentional in God's providence. In other words, God has orchestrated that parallel. He has put that parallel in Scripture for us to see and for us to exult in and to treasure That God-directed, that God-intended prophetic parallel is called typology. What does that have to do with Matthew 1? Well, that's what I think is happening in our passage today. In Matthew chapter 1, I think this is an example of typological fulfillment. Matthew says this all took place to fulfill a passage that occurs in Isaiah 7. All right? And if you were to flip back, back to Isaiah 7, you might be somewhat confused because it doesn't seem like Isaiah is actually talking about Jesus. And in a sense, he isn't, at least not in the direct fulfillment sense, but he is in the typological fulfillment. Let's look at that passage, Isaiah 7, 14. We actually preached through, uh, through this same sort of idea back on Christmas Eve. 
Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And you read that every Christmas and you think, that's talking about Jesus. And that's true, it is. But it's not only about Jesus. Remember, it's not just direct fulfillment. There's also an Old Testament referent there. I think there is this immediate fulfillment in Isaiah's day. And that Jesus is then this final typological fulfillment of the passage. If that sounds hard to understand, bear with me. I'll try to explain it. In the context of Isaiah 7, Isaiah is having a a conversation with uh, King Ahaz. King Ahaz reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah hundreds of years before Christ. By the way, Ahaz is actually mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. If you look back in verse 9. And you may not remember this, but Ahaz was actually a really wicked king. At this time, uh, the kingdom of Israel was divided actually into two kingdoms, two nations, Judah, the southern kingdom, over which Ahaz ruled, and then Israel, the northern kingdom. And what's interesting is as you read the accounts of the kings of both of the kingdoms that you see in the books of Kings and Chronicles, you'll note that all of the kings of the northern kingdom were evil, but some of the kings of the southern kingdom were good, and others were bad. Ahaz was bad. And so because of her sins, because of, uh, of Israel's sins, the northern kingdom is about to be exiled to a land called Assyria. But first, Israel has formed an alliance with Syria. And Israel and Syria together want to overthrow Judah. They want to overthrow Ahaz. And they want to replace him with a more northern friendly monarch. So Israel and Syria, the northern kingdom and Syria, march to the southern kingdom, to Judah, and they declare war. And unfortunately, instead of seeking Yahweh's help, instead of seeking God's help during that crisis, King Ahaz had turned to the Assyrians, which is kind of like asking China to save you from Russia or Hitler to save you from Stalin or something like that. That's bad enough, but then Ahaz offers Assyria gold and silver taken from God's temple. So Isaiah shows up and he says, what are you doing? You're robbing God in order to pay God's enemies to do what only God can do. Right? You've you got to be kidding me. But even so, Isaiah says that God promises grace. He promises help. In fact, he says in Isaiah 7, 4, don't be afraid of these two nations because God is soon going to judge them. And in that context, in that historical context, and in that literary context of Isaiah 7, we find this prophecy of a child to be born that we read each Christmas. Isaiah says that a child will be born as a sign to Ahaz and to Judah so that they can see God's provision even in the midst of their sin. So let's pick it up in Isaiah 7. We'll read 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that seems like a humble thing. Seems like something that's good. That's not why Ahaz is doing it. Ahaz is doing this because he doesn't want Yahweh's help because he's already hired the Assyrians. And so he gets rebuked. Isaiah says to him, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's when the northern and southern kingdoms split. The king of Assyria. So what's happening here? Isaiah says, God is going to use Assyria to defeat the armies of the northern kingdom and Syria. But at the same time, Assyria, the very nation that Judah has hired to protect her, would also be used to discipline Judah. Furthermore, God is going to provide a sign to validate this prophecy. That sign is that a young woman, the Hebrew word that's used here can mean virgin or young woman. In the New Testament, the word that's used there, the Greek word there, is, uh, is much less flexible. But in the Hebrew, it's just a young woman will give birth and God will deliver the land before that child is of a certain age. 
Now, if you want to take this passage as being just direct fulfillment, that's all Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah is just talking about the birth of Jesus, and there's nothing else that he's talking about there. That's a problem. Because it says, before the child is, uh, is old enough to eat curds and honey, the land is going to be deserted, and yet Jesus wasn't born for a few hundred years after that. So that's not a very helpful sign for Ahaz. doesn't make any sense for God to say, ask for me a sign, and then the sign doesn't come for hundreds of years. That doesn't provide any proof that God is going to deliver you from your enemies today if the fulfillment of the sign doesn't happen for centuries. So there is a sense in which this passage was fulfilled in the days of Ahaz and Isaiah. Most scholars think that the young woman who will give birth in Isaiah's day is either Isaiah's wife, she's there with him as he's prophesying, or it is Ahaz's wife. And so they think what's happening is Isaiah says, before that woman gives birth, whether it's Isaiah's own wife or Ahaz's wife, before that woman, uh, before that woman's child gets to be a certain age, God is going to fulfill this thing that he has said. So in chapter 8, Isaiah's wife gets pregnant. She has a son. They name that son Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. It's another good baby name for you. And God is going to use the birth of this child as a sign that, would, uh, that, that God is going to punish Israel and punish Syria by means of Assyria, but also discipline Judah for their lack of faith. That's the immediate reference of Isaiah 7.14. A young woman will give birth as a sign of deliverance. And if the prophecy in Isaiah's di- uh, day was a sign of deliverance, how much more will the birth of Jesus who isn't merely born of a young woman, but is actually born of a virgin. That question, how much more, takes us to the very heart of this idea of typological fulfillment. Again, it isn't just that Jesus parallels the Old Testament. It's that he expands it. He increases it. The promises of the New Testament are better than the promises of the Old Testament. He fills them full. That's what fulfillment means. It doesn't merely fulfill it. Imagine you have a, a water bottle and it's filled partially. It doesn't merely fill it. He gives you a bigger water bottle. That's kind of the idea there. So if the blood of bulls and goats was good, how much better is the blood of Christ? If the old covenant was good, how much better is the new covenant? If the temple was really awesome, how much better is the body of Christ? Jesus is the new and better Adam. He's the father of a new creation. He's the new and better Abraham, the father of a new people. He's the new and better Passover lamb. He's the new and better temple. He's the new and better high priest. He's the new and better king. He's the new and better prophet, speaking new and better promises, new and better covenant. That's typology. That's what Matthew is doing here. Matthew isn't necessarily saying that Isaiah was looking into the future and predicting the virgin birth of Christ, but rather that the Spirit as he was giving prophecy to Isaiah, embedded in that promise a future fulfillment that would apply to Christ as well. Now notice what comes next. You shall call his name Emmanuel. That was part of Isaiah's prophecy as well. Emmanuel means God with us. And this is the ultimate theme of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the heavens and the earth. And notice where God is. God is dwelling among man. He metaphorically lives among men. You see him walking in the cool of the, uh, the garden in the day, or cool of the day in the garden. But then sin enters into the world, and this holy God can no longer dwell among unholy men and women. So the rest of the story of the Bible is basically the story of the history of redemption with the ultimate goal being that God and man are able to dwell together. That God can, quote, be with us. Look at Isaiah 60, 19 through 20. This is the Old Testament expectation. The sun shall no longer, uh, shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting night, light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of mourning shall be ended. You see a similar idea, Revelation 21, 22 to 23. And I saw the temple in the city for its. Uh, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
So God is dwelling among his people at the end of Revelation. He's dwelling among his people at the beginning of Genesis. There are these two bookends, and all that is in between those two are basically the fulfillment of that theme. But notice what God's present is contingent upon. It's contingent upon something happening to our sin. That's the order. You have to see that order. God saves us from our sin. Jesus saves us from our sin. That's the cause. And the effect is that God can once more dwell among us. Let's keep going. Last two verses. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So now you get to the resolution of the story. He wakes up, and he does what you would expect him to do. He's a just person. He obeys. All right? He seeks to follow the revealed will of God. The law says that he couldn't marry an unfaithful fiancé, but the dream reveals to him she hasn't been unfaithful. And God has explicitly told him to marry her, so he does. He marries her. He adopts Jesus as his own. He takes her as a wife. That's an idiom for marriage. He marries her, but he doesn't immediately consummate the marriage. He didn't know her until she had given birth. That's really important. So there's no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is not his biological son. That ruins everything if Jesus is Joseph's bio, biological son. By the way, it's, it's also really important that you note that word until. He didn't consummate the marriage before Jesus was born, but he did afterwards. He didn't do it until Jesus was born. And the reason I mention that, there's another Roman Catholic uh, doctrine, dogma, about Mary that's refuted here. It's called the perpetual virginity of, of Mary, the idea that Mary was always a virgin, even after giving birth to Jesus. There's a number of problems with that. Number one, we actually have two brothers of Jesus who wrote books of the Bible, James and Jude. All right? So unless they're also virgin birth, which throws everything at a loss, right? But there's another uh, argument against perpetual virginity that I hadn't considered uh, prior to this week, and that it's these two Roman Catholic doctrines... Um, or these two doctrines that we've talked about today kind of contradict each other. Um, that is the, the, the Roman Catholic belief that Mary was sinless and the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin. If you think about it, they actually contradict each other. Think about that for a second. The idea that Mary was sinless and the idea that she was a perpetual virgin contradict each other. How so? Because even Roman Catholics would say Mary was married to Joseph. They would just say, but they weren't ever intimate. The problem with that, if you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is it's a sin. Unless there's some sort of a you know, debilitating uh, you know, disorder or something like that, it's a sin if you're not intimate with your spouse. And, uh, and so that, is a, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with this passage. It's just sometimes fun to you know, poke a bit of fun at Catholics. <laughs> That's Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Here's where I want to land the plane this morning. In the history of the church, there were a number of heresies. We've talked about these before. You've heard of guys like Arius and Pelagius, right? Arius denies that Jesus is fully God. Pelagius denies that man was inherently sinful. And so there was this pattern of heresies in the early church, and indeed all heresies, even in later church history. And that heresy is the idea that the creature can rise up to the Creator on his or her own. We talked about this before, but all of existence can be summed up into two categories. We have a slide that shows those two categories. Is it up there? Yeah, there it is. Creator, and then you have creation. And ne'er the two shall meet, all right? You have the Creator, and you have the creation, and there is a hard line between the two. It's not blurry. It's not a gradual spectrum. Notice that there's a hard line between the two. There is creator, full stop, and then there's an entirely different category of existence that is creation. That's as opposed to like pantheism or panentheism or something like that where there's this blurry uh, lack of distinction between these two categories. And so what the church has always sought throughout our history to preserve is the centrality of the idea that the gospel demands that God must be the one who initiates our redemption. The creature cannot ascend to God. If you've ever seen the picture from the Vatican that Michelangelo uh, has of, 
of, uh, of Adam reaching up to God. That's an unbiblical idea. The creature cannot reach up to God. God must condescend to man. Creature can't cross that line on his own and ascend to the creator. The creator must condescend below that line to man. And that's what we see in our passage today. We see the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He overcomes the natural process of procreation so that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, could be born of a virgin. And that's essential because it shows us how we're saved. Only one who is divine could pay the debt of sin, but it also shows that salvation is always and only of God. This is not something that we do. We don't save ourselves from our sins. God saves us. And the virgin birth demonstrates that. As it's been said before, we contribute nothing to our salvation other than the sin that makes it necessary. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. It's all of God's providence and sovereignty. So there isn't much application in this text. If you're looking for something, what do I do with this text? There's not much except this, worship. Exult, treasure, believe these truths and worship in light of them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the reality of the virgin birth. I thank you that though we were so broken that we couldn't overcome our sin, we couldn't overcome death, we couldn't overcome sickness and disease and Satan, we couldn't free ourselves from our bondage to ourselves that you made a way in your son. And I pray that you would help us, help us to be people who are repentant of the idea that we can save ourselves, that we do contribute something meritorious or something good or some sort of first spark of obedience apart from your grace that we would see, no, it is all entirely 100% your grace and mercy to us and that we would worship out of that. I pray that you would bless us as we sing now and as we gather together in our picnic, Lord, that you would give us uh, hearts that even as we grieve some of the sadness in our body, that we would also uh, rejoice. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen.